Good morning. It's good to see you this morning, to be with you, to be able to worship our God together. I'm excited to see you. I'm excited to be here. And what a joy it is for us to be together, to worship the King together. And what a wonderful service that we've had, praising Him, thinking about Him in the ways and reverent ways that we've done so far. I want us to begin to think this morning about the biblical synonyms that we have throughout the New Testament, specifically for Christian. There really are a lot when you think about it. We, we use the word Christian all the time, and, and really that happens and showcases and shows itself in the New Testament very briefly, just a couple of times really. But there are other words that are used many more times than that, words like disciple or words like saint or brother or sister or brethren, those kinds of words. But for our consideration this morning, there is another word that's used, specifically by the Apostle Paul, a word that I really like and really fits the idea that we're trying to build upon this trimester, that we are soldiers of Christ that we are in battle, that we are engaged in war, and that we are together in that, that we are soldiers together. And it's a word, an idea, a picture that Paul will conjure up multiple times in his writings. Here's a couple examples of that taking place. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 25, he says this, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, and then he describes him, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. What a powerful phrase that is. He does something very similar in the book of Philemon. In Philemon chapter 1 and verse 2, that only chapter that we have there in that book, he says to the beloved Aphia Archippus, our fellow soldier. You have that phrase again. He really expands upon that idea as Paul writes to Timothy, the young evangelist, and he wants to instill in him the idea of soldiering, the idea of Warfare, and he does so this way. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, You therefore must endure hardship. How? As a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. You see, multiple times here in the New Testament, as Paul is referencing a fellow brother, a fellow worker, a fellow Christian, he showcases them as a soldier. Even digging in deeper here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, it let him know that you are at war. You are engaged in warfare. A phrase that is really important for us today. So as Paul says that we're engaged in warfare, as he writes this to Timothy, for us, what does that look like today? Well, I want to use to help us a war story that we'll mostly be familiar with, that I think will help us here at the very beginning, and we're actually going to come back to it at the very end. 
I want to draw your minds back to the early stages of World War II, specifically here in the United States. In the early stages, for us here in the United States, I keep speaking us like I was here uh, in the early stages of World War I. I wasn't, or World War II, I wasn't. I know I'm old and getting up there, but not quite yet. But the early stages of the war, we were doing our very best to kind of stay out of it as best as we could. We didn't really want to get too terribly involved. We thought it to be a war that was engaged in Europe, and we really were okay if it just stayed there. But all of that changed on the morning of December the 7th and 1941. We are understanding of the story. Six Japanese aircraft carriers cross the Pacific Ocean. They launch an attack on Pearl Harbor there in Hawaii. And as a result of that attack, 18 warships are sunk. 180 aircraft are destroyed. 2,400 Americans killed. A devastating attack now on our soil. If you remember famously on the very next day, December the 8th, our President Roosevelt addresses the nation and he, he states that on December 7th, 1941, a date that will live on in infamy. And at the very end of that speech, our President declares war on Japan. You know, when I think of that story, and I think of that situation that faced our nation so long ago, I cannot help but to think about our situation, the one that we find ourselves involved in right now. You see, I think in a lot of ways, as a Christian, we would love We would love to paint a picture that as a Christian, I can just stay out of the way. Or I can just stay in the shadows. Maybe no one will notice me. Maybe no one will take note of who I am or where I am or what I'm all about. I don't want to make any ripples. I don't want to make any trouble. I don't want to be engaged in anything difficult. I don't want to be engaged in anything troublesome. I don't want to cause trouble. I don't want to have any trouble. I just want to stay out of all of it. And if we remember from our story, that's what this country tried to do. We're not going to declare war on anyone, and that should mean that no one will declare war on us. But that isn't how war operates. Japan was not waiting for us to declare war on them and then say, well, now that we're both on the same page, we're going to come after you. As a Christian, whether we like it or we don't like it, the devil has already declared war on all of us. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter will say the reality about what his idea and his plan for all of us is. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. His intent is to destroy us. 
We can try to stand back and say, well, I don't, I don't, have any, I don't want any business of that, or I don't want to be involved in any of that, or I don't want to be uh, around any of that. It doesn't make a difference. As a Christian, we are at war, and the devil has declared war on us already. That's what he's all about. He's all about destruction. Now, our war... Unlike the war that we just talked about, World War II, it isn't a physical war. It is so very different. It is a spiritual war. We have to understand what that means in order to engage in it. I want you to go to John, in John chapter 18. In John chapter 18, as, as Jesus is kind of on trial uh, in a mock kind of way almost, and is ping-ponging back and forth between various authority figures, and he finds himself at the feet of Pilate multiple times. And Pilate is confused about what to do with him, and he engages himself in conversation with Jesus uh, at length even. And Pilate is looking at him, and he's like, I don't know what to do with this guy. He seems like he's an okay guy. He doesn't seem like a troublemaker. He doesn't seem like someone who should be worthy of death. But yet all the Jews, they want me to do something with them. And so he's battling all of that. And so he talks to Jesus about multiple things. And he says in John chapter 18, beginning in verse 33, he says that Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? He asked Jesus. And Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answers, Am I a Jew? You're your own nation, and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, listen to him. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And so the point that Jesus makes when asked, are you a king? Do you have a kingdom? And he says, yes, I, I, I am a king. I have a kingdom. But it is so unlike anything that you can wrap your mind around. It's not a physical kingdom that you're familiar with, that engages in physical war that you're familiar with. It is a spiritual kingdom that engages in spiritual war. What does that look like? Well, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, you can turn over there. We're not going to read that section. I'll give you just a quick precursor that uh, in the very near future, we're going to spend some time specifically in this passage where we'll be able to dig into it a little bit deeper. But hopefully it's a passage you're familiar with where Paul is giving the analogy again there of uh, the Christian as a soldier. But what's really important about that passage is that it is God equipping us as a soldier. Now, I think wrongly, there have been some in the past that tried to paint Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17 as a picture of defense in a lot of ways. That God gives us these kinds of things to defend ourselves. And there is some reality to that. But when we only put that idea in our mind, guess where we're going again? 
We're going to the Christian that hides in the shadows. We're going to the Christian that stays out of the way. We're going to the Christian that tries not to cause trouble, be in trouble, or to be about anything difficult. That's the furthest thing from the truth about what Ephesians chapter 6 is all about. Because if you really begin to think about it, what God is doing in Ephesians chapter 6, this picture of a soldier is a soldier ready for the fight. There is a fight involved. You are engaged in war and you must be ready for it. It is the readiness to fight. The readiness to be engaged in war. So that brings us to where our scripture reading was this morning. You may still be open there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, again, a very similar kind of language that's used, specifically about our war. Let's read it together again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. There are two things I want to draw out about this passage, and then we're going to make two applications based off of that. The first idea is that he wants us to understand that the weapons that we wield in this fight are powerful, are mighty. The weapons that God gives us, whether you want to look to Ephesians chapter 6, whether you want to look to this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it is these passages that tell us that what God equips us with are mighty, the New King James says. You may use a different translation that uses that phrase that has divine power. I have the best. I am equipped with the best. There isn't anything that comes up against me as a Christian that is equipped with more power than I have. An understanding of that. Well, what does that do? Well, it helps in our courage. It helps in our boldness. That understanding that there isn't anything that, that, that can come up against me. There isn't anything that Satan can throw at me that is equipped more than in which I am equipped. Or that has more power than what I am equipped with. Because as Paul reminds us here in this passage... The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God. This should remind you of other passages. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is a weapon that we are equipped with. 
a weapon that has power, incredible power. But not power that I give or that I possess. It is power that comes from God. And so when we understand that power, secondly from this passage, I want you to take notice about what Paul says that this mighty weapon is capable of. Think about the words that are used. Just here in the New King James. Pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Punishing all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Again, you you may be using a a translation. I think the ESV and the New American Standard both use the word destroy at the very beginning of this context. Think about the words here. Pulling down, casting down, punishing, destroying. What all of these terms show is that our warfare, our spiritual warfare, is to be proactive, not reactive. Not just sitting back and waiting for Satan to come to us, but going to where he is and being ready for that battle. Now, that mindset, I think, makes some people uncomfortable. The proactive nature of war. That's what it's all about. It's got to be about that. And so I want us to take that idea, and we're going to base two applications off of that. The the idea of in in what ways can we be proactive in our war with Satan? I'm going to give you two things to think about. The first is this. We can be proactive in our readiness. Now, applications of that are bunches, bunches of applications. I'm going to give you two specific ones, and you may be thinking, you may be thinking of lots of others, and and feel free, feel free to let your mind dwell and meditate upon other ways that we can be proactive in our readiness. But I'm going to give you two examples just to kind of help spur your thinking about what this looks like. If I'm going to be proactive in my readiness What does that look like? Well, let's take, for example, our families first. How can I be proactive in this war against Satan? How can I be proactive in my readiness when it comes to my family? Well, there's lots of ways that we can do that. The first way that we can do that is that we can make sure and not wait for our children to be teenagers before we prepare them for the troubles that face that age group. How often do we get where we just kind of float along as parents? And if there's a problem, I guess we'll try to deal with it. And then maybe we get through that. And maybe another problem comes up and, and we'll deal with that. And then maybe another problem comes up and we'll deal with that. Well, it's good to deal with problems. But is there a way to be proactive in my readiness in those things? For sure there is. That when my children are young, to begin to prepare them for the fights and the battles and the difficulties that culture is going to bombard them with. 
to make sure it, it isn't. As a teenager, I have a child that comes to me destroyed and devastated by something that I did not prepare them for. As parents, it is our job to be proactive in our parenting. Sure, we've got to be reactive at times. But we also have to be proactive at the same time. Is that easy? No, it's not easy. All hard things are exactly like that. Being able to be reactive as well as proactive. Dealing with the now at the same time looking to the then. But isn't that the life of a Christian? I mean, in general, isn't that the life of a Christian? Dealing with the now while looking to the then. We've got to be proactive in our readiness, but not just by way of example of our children, even in our marriages. Is there a way for us as husbands and wives to not wait for divorce to be knocking on our doors to make sure that our marriage is the kind of marriage that God wants it to be? Do we have to wait? Do we have to wait until it's absolute DEFCON 3 in our marriage before we're like, whoa, maybe we should do something about this. Maybe we should love each other now. Well, let's be proactive to make sure that knock on the door never takes place. We've got to be proactive in our readiness because, listen, Satan, he is wanting badly to get into two places. Number one, the Lord's church. Desperately wants in here. Desperately wants to tear it up. But you know where else? The family. Desperately wants to get in there. Desperately wants to tear that thing apart. Because he knows if he's able to get into either of those two places, incredible damage can be done. And so we've got to be proactive in our readiness. We've got to be proactive in our readiness when it comes to evangelism. What do I mean by that? Well, how about not waiting for an opportunity to teach someone about Christ before I begin to prepare my mind and my study to be ready for that opportunity? How often is it where we are thrown an opportunity in our face and we're like, man, here is a great opportunity to talk to this person about Christ, but yeah, I'm just not equipped for that. And then we begin to think, well, well, maybe I'll equip myself now for the next time. And listen, we've got to be able to do that. But how about we make ourselves ready right now? So when that opportunity does come our way, I'm ready for it. That when I have an opportunity to talk to someone about Christ, my mind is prepared for that. My study has been prepared for that that I've prepared myself to have that conversation. I've prepared myself to answer that question. I've prepared myself to know a passage that I can turn to. I've prepared myself for that. I have been proactive in my readiness. So many different examples that we can use to show the importance of being proactive in our readiness, whether it be our families, whether it be something else, whether it be evangelism, and that segue will bring us to the second thing. Just the second kind of application point from here. 
the idea here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 of pulling down Satan's strongholds one soul at a time. That's what it's all about. Listen, he has his flag planted all over the city of Indianapolis. Numerous souls. He has planted his flag. It is upon me and it is upon you as soldiers of Christ to pull that flag out and plant God's flag there. That's what evangelism is all about. It's all about pulling down Satan's strongholds. How do we do that? Well, listen, we do that one soul at a time. One soul at a time. Let's go back to our original idea. You remember at the beginning of the lesson we talked about the devastation upon Pearl Harbor. And the line, really, the president drew in the sand there. He he decided then, right then, on that day, to be proactive in our war against Japan. We're not going to sit back and wait for you anymore. We're going to plant our flag on you. We're familiar with the story. In a lot of ways, that's exactly what happened. On February 23rd, 1945, one of the most well-known military photographs took place. And probably most of us are familiar with the photograph, may not exactly know when the photograph was taken or where it was taken. I told you, February 23rd, 1945. And it's a picture of Marines placing the American flag at the very top of a hill on a tiny island. But it was Japanese. And the first land that we took from them, the tiny island of Iwo Jima. What a significant photo that was. Why? Because it was a flag that we were planting on our enemy. How important was this picture? Well, the officers knew how important it was. Just a quick, quick little side note to this picture. This picture that is so famous was staged in every way. How do we know that? Well, the Marines that did that, come down from the hill and they tell people and their commanding officers, hey, we put a flag up there at the top. And the officer said, did you take a picture of that? And they're like, no, sir, we didn't take a picture. And he's like, get back up there and do it again and take a picture of it. Because he knew, he knew how significant that this picture would be. But we continue to do, continue to punish the Japanese. Punish them continually. And I want us to understand that idea is what we have to do to Satan. We have to place flags or banners, as we have sung today, of God on the hearts of those who Satan has to make them who he once had. That's how we take the war to him. Is it possible to do that? Sure it is. Think about this room as we close. 390 people here today, nearly 400 people. Take a moment, look around. A lot of people in here. 
a lot of people, a lot of soldiers. A lot of people, a lot of soldiers with powerful weapons in their hand. Think about the damage that we can do together to Satan just in this community. He doesn't own the city of Indianapolis. He doesn't own the souls of the people that he has. God does. And he has given us the task, us the task, to convince them to come back. That's what war is all about, difficult things. But the beauty of it is we here, the 400 of us, and others throughout even this community are in it together, fighting side by side. This so very important war. But let's not lose sight of who has the upper hand, who has the power, who has the equipment. We do. Divine power. And so as we think about those kinds of things, as Mark leads us in a song of invitation, it's important for us to consider that. It's important for us to consider that ultimately, in this battle that is waging, God wins. It's a story of Revelation. God wins. And so we've got to decide, well, what what side then am I going to be fighting on? Am I fighting on the losing side with Satan and his people? Or am I going to fight on the winning side with God? It's a decision we can be thinking about even as we sing this song. Maybe it is you haven't decided to join the forces of God, to be a soldier of his, to have your sins washed away so that you can be in a relationship with him. Well, those waters ready for your sins to be washed away, placing you in the ranks with Jesus. Or maybe you have deserted. You have deserted the army. You have left. You can come back. You can come back. It is a powerful thing to consider and think about. And maybe we can help you. If we can, you let us.